Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so uh, good to see you all here this morning. If you if you saw this last night, I hope I won't bore you too much. Um, and if not, I still hope I won't bore you too much. Okay, a little bit about me before I start, and it's an important disclaimer. Um, I am not a doctor. I'm not a nutritionist. Uh, I'm not trained in health sciences in any degree whatsoever. Um, in fact, the only relevant qualification that I bring to today is being a lawyer. So you might say, how on earth is that even remotely relevant? Um, only in one respect, and that is that the kind of lawyer I was, or, or am, is a commercial litigator. And commercial litigators are hired guns, people who fight other people's causes. When a bridge is broken, you fight about who should pay for it. When somebody messes up your heart surgery, you fight about who should pay for it. When you are fighting about things like that, you have to become expert, or at least pretty close to expert, in the things you are fighting about. And you have to be able to understand the evidence that you are presenting and the evidence that is likely to be presented against you in relation to the structure of the bridge or the way the heart works or the way an operation should be performed. So an ability to get across diverse areas of evidence quickly with clear understanding is one of the skills that a commercial litigator has to have. And that's the only relevant skill that I brought to the problem that I was trying to solve. So exactly what was that? Well, the problem was that I weighed 40 kilos more than I do now and I didn't like that much. I especially didn't like it because we had four children under the age of nine and I was really struggling to cope with that, keeping up with them and all the things that they like to do. But when my wife announced that our fifth child was in fact going to be our fifth and sixth children, I... Uh, it pushed me, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, to say the least. Now, I hadn't suddenly woken up one morning 40 kilos heavier. It had taken me 35 years to get to that point. Um, you know, a kilo here, a kilo there, just very, very slowly over time getting fatter and fatter and fatter. Like most of us, it's, it's what happens when you age, isn't it? I mean, that's the standard accepted explanation. We all get fatter as we age. Um, and it was, a, it was that kind of a process. Now, I'd never been happy about it as most people who are overweight aren't. And so every now and then I would spot a diet on the television about, you know, eating cabbages for a month or eating bananas for a month or going on Atkins or not eating carbs or not eating fat, and I would give those things a go and they'd work. Fabulously. They'd work until my willpower gave out, which was usually about the two-week mark for me, no matter what it was. But in that two weeks I'd lose a kilo, a kilo and a half, and it'd all be good. And then the willpower would give out I'd want to go back to, the weight, to eating normally and the weight would come back usually with a bit of interest. And I think that story is pretty, pretty much the same to varying degrees to everyone who's ever tried to lose weight. The amount of time they stick at it probably varies according to how much willpower they've got to give, but the story is pretty much the same. So I'd been through all of that, but I was determined when I found out that we were going to be having six kids under the age of 10 um, that I had to do something about this. And I thought, you know what? There's something I'm not understanding about weight. Because I look around the planet and I see every other species on the planet controls their weight on autopilot. Their weight is exactly the weight they should be for their species. Lions don't hang out at gyms. Monkeys don't sign up to Weight Watchers. They all control their weight on autopilot. They control it exactly the same way they control their height 
on autopilot. They don't require willpower to do it, unless we're missing something about how animals work. The only animals that have problems controlling their weight are ones that are us and ones that we feed. And that's it. The only ones. So there has to be something different that somehow willpower is required for us to control our weight but for nothing else. So I went looking for the evidence. I wanted to understand what it was that I was not understanding about how human bodies worked because clearly I was missing something. And I first of all looked at the National Healthy Eating Guidelines and I looked there for an explanation. And they told me that what I was not understanding was that fat made you fat and that exercise makes you thin. And all you've got to do is eat less fat and exercise more and everything will be all right. Now, I was dubious about that, to say the least, simply because I'd tried it so many times and it didn't work, because both of those methods appeared to require something that I didn't have, which was willpower. But I looked to see what evidence those statements were based on and I found medical report after medical report and I quickly understood that I didn't understand how to read those reports. And that's where the relevant training came in. I had to spend a lot of time getting myself up to speed on how to read medical research. But once I had, I realised that the medical research that was being relied upon didn't say much. It said, read this earlier study. So I'd read that and it would say, read this earlier study. And I would do that. And it would trace back until the 1950s, where a great big guess was the foundation. So, for example, on the question of fat makes you fat, the guess involved was an observation that fat is 9 calories per gram, whereas everything else we eat is 4 calories per gram. So proteins and carbohydrates, which are the other two things we eat, um, are 4 calories per gram, fat 9 calories per gram. So gram for gram... Fat has more than twice as many calories. Simple logic, if you're eating fat versus the other two things, you'll get fat, more calories. It's a simplistic statement because it ignores the fact that we're a highly complex machine that monitors and controls our calorie intake using multiple intertwined systems. But that was the source of that statement. And then study after study after that attempted to prove it, without success, I might say but attempted to prove it. The other big guess that was made at the time was by an American nutritionist who said, well, he did a study and he observed that when you took a population of overweight people, they exercised less than a similar population of people who were the right weight. So fat people exercise less than thin people. And from that he drew the obvious conclusion, therefore, exercise makes you thin. Now, I say obvious, but it was one of the two obvious conclusions. The other obvious conclusion, which he ignored, was that being overweight makes you exercise less. But that bit was ignored, and we just went with theory A, that exercise will make you thin. At the time, doctors were gobsmacked and wrote letters of protest to the New York Times, saying this is ridiculous. Prescribing exercise for fat people is like prescribing alcohol for alcoholics. Why? Because they knew something that you all know, which is that exercising generates appetite. You want to make yourself hungry, go and exercise, and then you will eat. So we compensate for any amount of energy expenditure 
using a finely balanced process of managing our energy. None of you will be able to tell me how many calories exactly you consumed yesterday. And all of you would be able to say that whatever you consume today is probably different. Your body is managing exactly how many calories you consume to match the amount of energy you expend. And it's no different if it's exercising in a gym or walking down the street or standing up from your chair or even just sitting there where you're burning 100 calories an hour. So all of this, all of the health advice that I had been trying to follow was based on these two big guesses. And that looked a little odd to me. But what I noticed when I was drilling back through this research is that there was a parallel line of research being done in the United Kingdom by a fellow by the name of John Yudkin. He said he had this theory that carbohydrates were in fact the problem, our other source of energy. We're machines that run, need energy to run. Our two sources of energy in our diet are carbohydrates and fat. Protein we use to build ourselves. The carbohydrates and fat we use for energy. Um, he said, well, maybe it's not the fat. Maybe it's the carbohydrates. And the reason he said that was because he'd been trying to make rats fat with fat. And he couldn't. Couldn't manage it. But he noticed that if he overfed them carbohydrates, they got fat and they got quite sick. Heart disease, liver problems, all kinds of things. And then he narrowed it down a little bit and he said, could it really be carbohydrates are that dangerous? Because if it, if it is, then we've got a big problem because it's 60% of what we all eat. So he narrowed it down. He said, let's, let's narrow down the carbohydrates and see which ones we're really talking about. And he narrowed it down to sugar, table sugar. He found that if he could give rats table sugar, then all of these things happened much quicker and much worse. The rats got fatter quicker, the heart disease developed quicker, the insulin resistance developed quicker, all of those things. And he said, well, hang on, we've still got a bit of a problem. If it's sugar, we've still got a problem because half of sugar is glucose. And we are a machine that runs on glucose. So if glucose is a problem, we've got a problem. Because everything we eat is ultimately converted to glucose to run our systems. All of our cells rely on glucose for energy. So if it was the glucose half of sugar, then there's still a very big problem. So he set out doing some experiments where he fed some rats pure glucose and some rats pure fructose, which is the other half of sugar the half that makes sugar sweet. The glucose-fed rats were fine. The fructose-fed rats had all the same problems as the ones he'd been feeding sugar, only worse and faster. And so he said, well, there's your problem. There's this substance that I'm feeding these rats that causes these problems. What would happen if we did that to humans? And he started following a line of research where he started human studies and other animal models and so on. That's what got me interested. I thought... Wow, if he's right, then I'm eating a substance that's directly affecting my health and the least of it is that it's making me fat. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just stop eating sugar and see what happens. And so I did. I thought it'll be easy. It'll be easy. I, I, don't, I don't put sugar in my tea or my coffee. I don't, um, don't put sugar on my breakfast cereal. I only have a Coke every once in a blue moon. Never have a Mars bar or anything like that. Chocolate is a special treat every now and then. Deleting sugar is going to be no big deal. And then I looked in the pantry. And I found that it was a very big deal indeed. Because everything I found in there had vast amounts of sugar in it. The breakfast cereal, the healthy breakfast cereal, which at the time I was eating something called Uncle Toby's Fibre Plus, 
was 28% sugar. A third of the stuff was sugar. So that had to go. My favourite barbecue sauce was 55% sugar. The primary ingredient in the stuff was sugar. My favourite yoghurt was 22% sugar. But it didn't say anything about sugar. In fact, the only thing it said on the front of it was no added cane sugar. I'll get to later on how they managed that little trick. But everything had loads of sugar in it. And so I thought, you know what, if I'm going to really be serious about deleting this fructose from my diet, I have to be able to identify all the things that have sugar in them and I have to make myself a rule that makes it easy to eliminate them. And the rule I made myself was, if sugar has been added to the product, and you can tell that by looking at the ingredient list, and you'll see sugar listed there, um, or something that looks like sugar, like concentrated fruit juice, um, and the total sugar is more than three grams per hundred, then don't eat it. So that's a pretty simple rule. It's what in law we call a bright line rule, which is a rule where there is no grey area. It's a bright line. Cross it, you've broken the rule. Um, and so I used that rule, and I applied it to the local supermarket and found that it was an extremely short list of foods that satisfied that rule. In fact, if I asked you to go to your supermarket now and create me a list of all the products that were less than 3% sugar that had sugar added, you'd be able to write that on the back of a postage stamp. Processed food, by definition today, contains large amounts of sugar. But anyway, I did manage to find exceptions to those rules. I found usually in almost every product category one or two products that satisfied the rule. 99% of breakfast cereals are out. Because a low-sugar breakfast cereal today is, say, something like cornflakes, which is 10% sugar. That's low sugar. The average breakfast cereal is up in the 20, 25, 30% range. The ones with heart foundation ticks on them are in the 30 to 32% range. So breakfast cereals are out, except for things which are just plain grains, like rolled oats. Um, some popular brands of wheat biscuits are very low in sugar. Um, anything else that is just a plain grain. But in most product categories, you'll find something like that, an exception. And so what I did was I said, okay, well, I'll just eat those things and see what happens. And what happened was something miraculous for me. I started losing weight, but that wasn't the miraculous bit. The bit that was miraculous to me is that I didn't need willpower to keep doing it. There was an ugly bit at the start, what I now call a withdrawal period, and we can talk about why it's a withdrawal period in a little while, but a withdrawal period where I had headaches. People say I had mood swings. Obviously, they had mood swings while I was in this, in this withdrawal phase. Um, and, you know, just generally not feeling great. Um, that period, it required a conscious effort for me to not eat something with sugar. Every time. I would have cravings constantly, every couple of hours. Would be nice to have something sweet right now. Or just something, because I knew most things would have sugar in them. Um, but after you get through that, after that two to four weeks, no willpower required. Suddenly, sugar is as attractive as broccoli. It's just another food. It's just something else. It no longer has that particular sway. And that was the unusual thing for me, because from that point onwards, I could not eat sugar and weight would still keep coming off without me having to exercise willpower, without me running the risk of going off the diet 
And that was an interesting and new experience for me. The other interesting and new experience for me was that I suddenly had, for the first time in my life, appetite control. I'd never experienced the sensation of getting halfway through a meal and being unable to finish it, physically unable to finish it. Brain saying, keep going and you will be sick. I'd never experienced before that real hunger. I'd experienced, yeah, I could eat pretty much all the time, um, but I'd never experienced real hunger like I did after I came off sugar. And I learned that when I experienced the hunger I should eat and when I was, my body was telling me not to eat, I shouldn't. And the inevitable thing happened is that I ended up eating a lot less. Not because I was trying to, but because my body was actually controlling what I ate and it was all happening on autopilot. So what Yadkin had theorised about sugar is that it was a hormone disruptor, an appetite control hormone disruptor, appeared to be true, to me at least. The result was that the weight just kept coming off and over the next 18 months I lost 40 kilos. And then I hit this weight, so it doesn't turn you into a supermodel, warning. Um, But the interesting thing is I stayed there. I have been this weight now for the last eight years without being on a diet, without worrying about what I ate. And that was the biggest change, the biggest relief to me was not worrying about what I ate, not caring other than it can't taste sweet. It's that simple. Because fructose, the fructose half of sugar, is what makes things taste sweet. And that's the only rule I applied. And then I eat whatever I want until I feel full. And that, to me, was miraculous. Because my entire life before that, I just had to look sideways at a packet of Tim Tams and I'd gain a kilo. Um, Now, I don't even have to worry about it at all. And that's a big relief. But you know what? The really interesting thing is that over that 18 months, I started to look more closely at what science had discovered about sugar since John Yudkin was playing around with rats. Because that was a long time ago. That was in the 1950s. I thought, surely science has moved on somewhat since then. Half the appetite control hormones that we now know about weren't discovered until the 90s. So a lot of his guesses would have been either verified or disproved since then. So I looked more deeply. And what I found was truly disturbing. Sugar is not about weight. What I found convinced me that even if I didn't lose a gram by deleting fructose from my diet, I still should have done it. Because the other things that weight is a symptom of, the other destruction that fructose is causing in your system is much more dangerous. So let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, how does fructose make us fat? Well, the first thing is, is that unlike the glucose half of sugar, which is used by every cell in our body. So when we eat glucose, it goes, or anything that's converted into glucose, which is any carbohydrate, um, it, it goes into circulation as blood glucose, and every cell in our body can access that blood glucose using a hormone called insulin. Insulin is secreted by our pancreas in response to that glucose. So as the glucose level rises, so too does the insulin level. So the insulin is used to get the glucose out of the blood into the cells that need it. Insulin does something else. Well, it does a lot of other things, but it does one other relevant thing, which is it's an appetite suppressant. So the more insulin you have circulating in your bloodstream, the less you want to eat. So as the amount of blood glucose goes up, as you're eating carbohydrates, as you are eating during a meal, the insulin level is rising. 
and it gets to a point where it shuts down your appetite. So it says to your appetite control system located in your hypothalamus, whoa, had enough carbohydrates, shut down, do not need to eat anymore, tell this body it's full. And you will feel full, and you'll, you'll, you'll think that that's a full stomach, but it's not a physically full stomach for most of us. It's just a sensation of having a full stomach, which we create with our hypothalamus. So it's an appetite suppressant. We have a similar one for fat, which is released from our gut. So as we eat fats, and they're digested through our intestine, um, a hormone is released called CCK, which acts as an appetite suppressant. Once again, as you eat fat, signal goes to the brain. The more of it you eat, the more of the signal goes, and eventually it shuts you down your appetite and says, right, had enough. And all of you will have experienced this sensation if you've ever tried to sit down and eat something that was very fatty in one go. You'll suddenly feel nauseous, suddenly feel like you can't keep going with it. And that's that hormone working. So the difference is with fructose, the fructose half of sugar, is that it doesn't do that. When it's absorbed through the gut, it's a sugar. So it skips past the control that says it's a fat. So it ignores the CCK control, as does glucose. But glucose hits the bloodstream and trips the wire for the insulin control. Fructose doesn't. There is no insulin response for fructose, which is why... Products containing fructose are marketed as low GI. GI is just a, 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 a way of saying there's an insulin response. So fructose doesn't trip that wire. You could theoretically eat pure fructose till the cows come home and never feel full until you actually were physically full because there's no hormonal signal going through that says stop eating now. So first of all, it's invisible to our appetite control system. The other interesting thing is that it isn't used for energy in our body. It goes straight to the liver and is metabolised straight to fat. That in itself isn't bad. I mean, fat is already fat. Um, so that doesn't make it unique. It's the fact that it does it without a control system that's the unique bit. So we have this substance that's directly metabolised to fat and doesn't trip our appetite control system. So that's a worry. You could see that that would start adding a few pounds over time, but that's the least of it. Because the other interesting thing that's been found very recently about fructose, half of sugar, is that worse than not tripping our appetite control system, it actually suppresses the insulin and leptin signals. Now, I haven't mentioned leptin to this point, so I will now. Leptin is our long-term appetite control hormone. So this is what stops us eating between meals. This is the signal that says you, are no, you do not need anything, you're fine, you've got enough energy to keep going. Leptin is released by every fat cell in our body. The more fat cells we have, the more leptin is released. So you can see what a sweet system that is. If you're carrying a lot of fat, more leptin, more appetite suppression, you don't eat as much. That's the way it's designed to work. When leptin was discovered in 1994, the, the, the scientists who discovered it thought they were onto a gold mine. Here is a hormone, a human hormone, that suppresses appetite. All you've got to do is give it to overweight people and they'll lose weight. That was the theory. They did the trials. It didn't work. And why it didn't work should be obvious to anyone who thought about it for a minute. Overweight people do not suffer from a lack of leptin. They have more of it than everybody else. It's not that they don't have leptin. It's not that they need an injection of leptin. It's that the leptin isn't working. It's that it's, the signal is not getting through. 
Now, leptin operates like a fuel gauge for us. It's like the fuel gauge on a car, except that when that signal's not getting through, the fuel gauge is reading empty. So it's like having a car that constantly says it needs more fuel when it's still got half a tank. Except that this car, when you go and fill it up with fuel, it'll let you put another full tank in. The interesting thing is that it's now been proven that fructose interferes with that leptin signal. It interferes with the signal that tells us to stop eating between meals. It interferes with the signal that tells us to stop eating during meals. That's the insulin signal. End result, you would expect if you're feeding a population fructose, over time, the total number of calories they consume should increase, if that's true. Because the things that are telling them to stop eating are being messed with. The, whole, the, the signals that say stop eating now are being messed with. The switch is half off rather than off or on. And that's exactly what does happen. When you look at total calorie consumption in the United States, which is a great example because they have great data on this stuff, over the last 30 years you will find that total calories consumed per capita of the population has increased by 1% per year, steadily, 1% per year. Now, 1% per year is not much. You wouldn't even notice it. 1% of 2,200 calories a day is 20 calories, which is a nibble of a Monte Carlo biscuit. So it's not much. But do it over 30 years, and you have a 30% increase or more in the total number of calories being consumed. So we've got this substance in our diet, which appears to be embedded in most things we eat, which directly makes us fat and gives us permission to eat more of everything else. So you can see how that might work to make 60 or 70% of the population overweight, as has happened now. By the way, on those stats, it's, it's really surprising how quickly that has happened. At the turn of uh, the last century, in around 1900, one in five of us was overweight or obese. And there were almost no obese people. So the, the overweight was marginally overweight. Now the statistic is opposite. One in five of us isn't in the space of a century. So we are talking about a dramatic change. But it's the kind of change you would expect if you were feeding a population something that messed with their appetite control system. And that's what we're doing. But that's the least of our worries. The other thing that's happening is, remember I said that fructose is converted to fat. That fat just isn't any old fat. It doesn't make you look ugly in bikinis fat. It is fat that accumulates around your liver. It's internal fat, which is why we are seeing an epidemic of fatty liver disease. Now, fatty liver disease doesn't have a lot of symptoms, so most people don't, who have it don't know they have it until they're being diagnosed for something else. Fatty liver disease is an accumulation of fat around the liver. Around 30% of the adult population have it now. That is an extraordinary statistic, and it's getting worse and worse by the minute. Why does it matter? Well, not so much because of the problem of having fatty liver, because, as I said, there aren't symptoms until it gets really bad and becomes cirrhosis of the liver, but because fatty liver disease is linked directly to type 2 diabetes. It is not a known fact that there's a high association between fat around the liver and insulin resistance. Insulin resistance, do it for long enough, which is that your cells that need the energy from the glucose in your bloodstream can't get it because they're resistant to the signals from insulin, leaves the blood glucose too high, 
blood glucose too high for long enough eventually leads to type 2 diabetes. That's the short version of the story. But as I've only got five minutes left, I have to give you the short version. Um, That is a bad thing. It's why we're seeing type 2 diabetes explode in this country. In the 1960s, almost no one had it. It was a virtually unknown disease. Now 1.2 million Australians have it. And the rate of growth is truly extraordinary. It is now a national health priority simply because of the rate of explosion of this, this disease. There are some Pacific Island countries where 70 or 80% of the population now have type 2 diabetes. In the Aboriginal population in Australia, the rate of type 2 diabetes is two and a half times the Caucasian population. Strangely, so is their consumption of soft drinks. So, and because I'm limited in time, I won't go through the other cascades, but there are other cascades through to chronic kidney disease, Alzheimer's, depression, gout, uh, hypertension and heart disease. And all of those are thoroughly documented in my books. But there's something I wanted to mention, which is the worst thing about sugar, the absolute worst thing. And that's this. It's highly addictive. If I, just, if I was talking to you today about broccoli, there wouldn't be a problem. You'd say, gee, I really like broccoli, but OK, I'll switch to Brussels sprouts. I'll be fine. But I'm not talking to you about broccoli. I'm talking to you about something that most people in this room's reaction to me saying you have to stop eating it for the rest of your life would be, rest of my life? Maybe not. Or I could do that anytime, just not just right now. In fact, most people's reaction to being told they don't have to eat sugar again is exactly the same as a smoker's reaction to being told that they are not allowed to smoke again. And the reason for that is simple. It has an addiction pathway which is identical to nicotine. It is just as addictive as nicotine, but it's a much bigger problem to avoid. If I tell you to give up smoking, give up nicotine, all you've got to do is remember not to put a cigarette in your mouth. And if you should find a cigarette in your mouth, remember not to light it. Sucked nicotine just doesn't work. Um, But with sugar, you can't do that because the food processing industry has ensured that it is embedded in everything you eat. And the reason they've ensured that it's embedded in everything you eat is because they know, as well as everybody else does who cares to admit it, this stuff is white gold. You put it in food, you sell more than the guy next to you. If the guy next to you puts more in his food, you put more in your food. You can see this happening on the supermarket shelves every day of the week. Two years ago, there were nine breakfast cereals on sale in Australia. All of them, except one, had 10% sugar. Sorry, I'm talking about uh, cornflakes. All of those brands of cornflakes had 10% sugar. One had 5%. That was Woolworths No Name, the home brand. It was 5% sugar. It got pulled off the shelf in October 2010 and reformulated. A month later, it was back on the shelf, sugar content 10%, no other changes. That's just one example of what's going on on the supermarket shelves every day of the week. They are in a war with each other, and we are the collateral damage. And that's the unfortunate truth. Now, I'm sorry, but I think we've run out of time. I'll just hand over to Brendan. 
Thanks, David. You have a chance to ask some questions to start thinking about those. Just to kick things off, David, last night you were talking about, actually I think you received a question from the audience about your diet and you, and you were speaking about um, uh, what you had for breakfast, bacon and eggs, I think, and, and, uh, and then you mentioned something about fruit and no fruit at all. I know your kids do and your wife probably does, but, but you've chosen not to eat any fruit at all. It didn't strike me as being balanced. Your response, and um, after this I'll give the mic back to David, your chance to ask questions, but your response to that. Um, yeah, I, well, I don't eat fruit because I'm a maniacal no-fruit eater. Um, it's just I don't go out of my way to eat it. Uh, if it's there, I'll eat it. Um, the reason I don't seek it out is because there's nothing you can get from a piece of fruit that you can't get from a vegetable without a lot less fructose. So fruit contains fructose, but that of itself is not a cause for concern. If you are eating it as originally packaged with all of its fibre and water in place, then you are not doing yourself significant damage. Yes, it contains fructose, but it also contains fibre that mitigates the damage being done by the fructose. It also slows the delivery of that fructose to the liver significantly. Would I eat vast quantities of fruit? No. Uh, In my books, I say that the Australian guideline is uh, two pieces of whole fruit per adult per day and one per child, and that's a perfectly acceptable guideline as far as I'm concerned. The problem comes when people think that juicing fruit is an acceptable alternative to eating fruit. Juicing fruit, fruit juice is not fruit. It's just taking the sugar out of fruit and throwing away everything else. There is no nutritional benefit to consuming juice over, say, consuming Coca-Cola. In fact, Coke has slightly less sugars per 100 mils than apple juice. So juice is not fruit, but whole fruit is fruit, and feel free to eat it. Any other questions? Yeah. So there is no difference between honey and sugar. Um, Honey is sugar. Honey is 40% glucose, 40% fructose, 20% water. Um, So now if you want to have your sugar in a liquid form that doesn't contain fructose, then I recommend you try something called rice malt syrup. Um, Rice malt syrup is is glucose, maltose, which is two glucose molecules joined together, and maltotriose, which is three glucose molecules joined together. It all ends up as glucose in our system. People say it tastes and performs a lot like honey. Not while they're still addicted to sugar. While they're still addicted to sugar, they'll say it's not sweet enough. Um, But after they get through that withdrawal phase and their palate adjusts, and that's something that does happen, your palate adjusts enormously after you're off sugar and quickly people say it reminds them of honey. By the way, agave syrup in the same category, it is not an acceptable alternative to to sugar. Agave syrup is 90% fructose, so it's actually the worst possible sweetener you could use. Any other questions? No. Um, You have to watch some American brands of rice malt syrup do add sugar because it's not sweet enough, Um, but you'll see... On the ingredient list, it'll say ingredients, rice, sugar. Um, But uh, all the Australian brands, as far as I know, are all free of added sugar. Yeah, no, maple syrup's just another way of saying sugar. It's about 60% fructose. Um, You can make an acceptable um, uh, facsimile of maple syrup um, with rice malt syrup um, and a bit of glucose syrup, which is just pure glucose. Any other questions? Yeah. I say, yes, brown sugar, rapidura, raw sugar, condensed cane juice, whatever they call it, 
all of these things are just sugar. And this brings me back to that yogurt I was talking about that said no added cane sugar on the front of it. It still had 22% sugar. How did they manage that? Well, because it wasn't cane sugar. What they'd done was use concentrated fruit juice. So you read the label, you see the normal things that should be in yogurt, and you also see concentrated fruit juice. So, in fact, they were putting almost pure fructose because concentrated fruit juice is usually either pear or apple. It's usually 70% fructose. They're using that instead of sugar. You're seeing the same trick starting to happen in the playground. Canteens often sell something called play waters these days. And play waters look like water, but they're sweet. Um, and they have on the label that the sugar being used is not sugar. So it says no cane sugar. But it, if you look at the list, it says crystallised fructose is the sugar they're using, pure fructose. Why are they doing that? Because they know it's the sweet half of sugar. They know they only have to use half as much of it. And they can get away with saying it's 5 grams per 100 mils rather than 10 for, say, a soft drink. And it tastes just the same. So manufacturers are already well on to this. And you have to be very careful about what the label says. Because they're trying to have you believe that there's no sugar when perhaps there is. Uh, no. Um, if, you, if you turn a fruit into a puree, it's fine. If that's all you've done is pureed some strawberries and then spread that on your toast, good on you. If, even, even if you did that and added a bit of glucose to it to try and make it a little bit sweeter. Glucose, by the way, is not very sweet. To someone who's eating sugar, um, they'll say it tastes like flour. To someone who's off sugar, however, they say it tastes like they were, they, they, the way they remember sugar tasting. So you could do that. But as soon as you start adding things in there, like reconstituted fruit juice or just fruit juice, you start bumping the sugar numbers up enormously. Strawberries are around about 4 to 5% fructose by weight. Strawberry jam is about 70% sugar. So jams are not a substitute for fruit. If you want to eat strawberries, eat strawberries, but not strawberry jam. Okay, so the question, and it's a good question uh, for the people at the back, is how do my kids go with not eating sugar, particularly outside the home? So the first thing you've got to know is that when you tell your kids that they're never going to eat sugar again in your life, in their life, you are not going to be winning any Parenting of the Year awards, um, especially not where they have a vote. Um, it has to be a slow process. It was a slow process with our kids. It took time. We eliminated the obvious sources of sugar immediately. So, you know, the cakes, the biscuits, the lollies, etc., anything like that that was in the house. Then we started slowly removing the other things like juices and sweetened yogurts and eventually breakfast cereals. Um, but for the longest time, it was a slow process, gradually pulling things out one by one until we'd gotten them to the point where effectively most of the food they were consuming, well, at least the food we controlled, did not have any sugar in it at all. Um, which meant that when they ate food outside the house, it tasted intensely sweet to them. So our kids still go to birthday parties. Our eight-year-old twins, now they're eight, um, go to a birthday party and they'll eat, there'll be lollies and stuff there and they'll, they'll try them and they'll eat them and they'll feel really sick afterwards. They'll complain of headaches the next day. They will not have been able to eat anywhere near as much as any of their peers and they'll essentially be hung over from it. And... That gets them through it. They don't want to line up for that again in a big hurry. But they're kids. 
and the next party they go to, they'll have another go. And that's what happens. But most of the time, they are sugar-free. Right, I put aspartame in with a group of things called high-intensity sweeteners, so aspartame, sucralose, natvia, um, stevia, those sorts of things, um, and I will call them all methadone for sugar addicts. Uh, so when you are in withdrawal, you will need stuff like that because you will have constant cravings. And if you can have something like that around that you can just take a hit of when you're in withdrawal, which is two to four weeks, you'll be fine. It's a self-correcting problem because by the time you get through withdrawal, at the end of that time, you discover that you don't actually like the taste of them anymore. Now, I remember this very, very clearly when I was doing it. When I started, I loved having Pepsi Max as a a crutch during withdrawal. And the reason I loved it is because it tasted almost exactly the way I remembered Pepsi tasting. By the end of withdrawal, I couldn't stand it. It tasted horrible and chemical-like and really awful. And to this day it does. And that's because the other interesting thing that happens during withdrawal is your palate adjusts. You can suddenly taste a much wider spectrum of taste than just sweet. And so it's a self-curing problem. Is it safe? I don't know. There's plenty of studies that say it's perfectly safe. There's plenty of studies that say it isn't. But the reality is these things have only been in our food supply for about 20 years and nobody really knows. I mean, sugar's been in our food supply in large quantities for 200 years. And we're only raising the flag about it now. Oh, that reminds me. I didn't tell you about how much we're consuming. How much? I mean, how much sugar are we consuming? In 1820, prior to commercialisation of sugar production, we were consuming about one and a half teaspoons of sugar a day. One and a half. Now, to give you some perspective on that, that size glass of apple juice, a small apple juice, contains six teaspoons of sugar. So the population as a whole was, con- was consuming just one and a half teaspoons of sugar total per day in 1820. Then they discovered the commercial process for producing what they called white gold for good reason. We are now on average consuming somewhere between 32 and 40 teaspoons of sugar a day. So a 40-fold increase in consumption in the space of 180 years. That alone should raise red flags. Sorry, yes. Yes. Um, the question is, uh, same thing applied to vegetable juices. When you, vegeta- when you juice a vegetable, you are extracting the sugar and throwing everything else out. A juice is no better if it came from a pumpkin than if it came from an orange. Yep. Yes. Um, so the little packets of sultanas that you might give to a child in their lunchbox, uh, they contain the same as a half a kilo of grapes. So you are significantly concentrating sugar. Grapes have a sugar content of around about 12%. Um, sultanas have a sugar content of about 65 to 70%. So dried fruit is not an acceptable substitute for fruit. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, as Brendan said, uh, well, so for, for, for example, this morning I had a nice cooked breakfast, bacon and eggs. Um, I would normally have a sandwich of some description for lunch, uh, normally meat and three veg type meal for dinner. You might have gathered by now that I'm not a vegetarian, um, but that doesn't mean anything. You can still be vegetarian and not eat sugar. There's, yes, there is fructose in vegetables, but it's microscopically small 
and the fibre content is huge. And so my advice would be there's no limit on the amount of vegetables you can or should eat. Um, yes? Mostly cooked. Uh, I'm not a big fan of raw anything, to be perfectly honest. Um, but, um, yeah, no, mostly cooked. Um, but, but if you want to eat it raw, then go for it. Uh, I, I might just give someone else a, a chance. Yep. Half and half. Yeah, so it's half fructose, half glucose. Uh, now, people often say, oh, but we need the glucose half of sugar. No, we don't. Um, we get glucose from everywhere, from everything, from every vegetable, every fruit, every bread, everything we eat ultimately ends up as glucose in our system. We don't need any component of sugar at all. There is no downside to not consuming sugar. Yes? So the question is bread? Yeah. Uh, I don't eat a lot of bread these days, and that's not because I'm some sort of maniacal anti-bread person, um, but if I do, uh, it'll be sourdough or maybe a rye, um, mostly because those are fairly low in sugar. But even look, uh, there isn't that much sugar in supermarket bread. There really isn't. If you just go with that rule of thumb that I gave you about keeping it less than 3%, you'll find there's an awful lot of breads on the shelf that you can eat. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I love a good takeaway. Um, the the only thing you've got to watch with a lot of takeaways is not adding sauce to it because adding sauce is just a way of adding sugar. There's more sugar in barbecue sauce than there is in chocolate sauce. So when people have takeaway and then put barbecue sauce all over it, they're just adding sugar. They're pouring teaspoons of sugar onto their savoury food. That's the thing you've got to watch when you eat takeaway. Plus, of course, the drinks and desserts. Okay, so milk, as in cow's milk, is fine. People will pick up a thing of whole milk and they say, oh, my God, it's 5% sugar. The, the sugar in milk is lactose. It's half galactose, half glucose. Galactose is metabolised to glucose anyway, so it's effectively all glucose. Um, so there's nothing wrong with lactose, unless you're lactose intolerant, uh, in milk. So plain milk is fine. If you see that the milk you're drinking is more than 5% sugar, then start to worry because then we've gone above what should be in there for lactose. It means they've sweetened it with something. So a chocolate milk will often be around 15, 16, 17% sugar. 5% of that is the lactose, and the rest is sugar. Um, other milks, soy milks, are generally not a good option, simply because they don't have lactose in them, and what they use instead of lactose, because milk needs a sugar, is sugar. So most versions of soy milk, if you read the label, you'll see sugar in it. And people will say, oh, it's only 2.5 uh, grams per 100 mils. And that's where my second part of the rule comes in, which is if you are drinking it, the acceptable limit is zero because we drink an awful lot more of 100 mils in a sitting. A glass of milk, a reasonable size glass of milk is about four to 500 mils. Five times 2.5 is an unacceptably large amount of sugar. If you are only going to have 100 mils of soy milk, then I guess you could have it. But if you're going to have any more than that, forget about it. Okay, last question. Yep. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm not sure how, because... 
when when you say a balanced diet, what 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 that should boil down to is are you getting the nutrients you need to survive? Um, I can't think of any way that you would be avoiding nutrients that you need to survive by avoiding sugar. I can't think of any natural packaging of food where sugar is an essential component of getting the nutrients. You don't even have to eat fruit if you don't want to. You get the nutrients from vegetables. So this is not saying to you, you must eat McDonald's every day of the week because there's not much sugar in a hamburger. This is simply saying, in the choices you make, avoid the ones which contain fructose. And the easiest possible way to do that, by the way, is just shop the outside of the supermarket. Whole fruit, whole veg, meat, dairy, milk, um, butter, cream, eggs, some assembly required when you get home. That's it, and you'll be fine. And no one in their right mind would say that's not a nutritious diet. Okay, thanks. Sorry, stevia is from a plant, but so is sugar, and so is opium. Um, now, does that mean stevia is dangerous or not? I don't know. If I had to pick a high-intensity sweetener that I was prepared to risk my life on, I'd go with stevia, simply because the Japanese have been eating it for the last 40 years and don't seem to have ill effects from it. Um, but I'd, it's no more worthy than sucralose or aspartame, in my view. It's still methadone for sugar addicts. Would you... Would you please thank David Gillespie?